0: The reason why the environmental impact is bad, of course, is what's called low energy density. For every square mile of these ridiculous solar panels or windmills, I mean, windmills, 14th century technology to solve a 21st century non-problem expensively. I mean, it's bonkers when you look at it, and this is what they do.
1: We're here at the Heartland Institute's conference in Orlando, and I'm with Lord Moncton. He's been a guest with us before. In fact, uh, we had quite a bit from him at the uh, UN Conference on Sustainable Development in Rio. Uh, he is a peer of the realm in the United Kingdom. He's also uh, the former science advisor to the great Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Lord Monckton, you have been working now for a few years on exposing a fundamental error that the climate narrative has right at the core of it. Tell the folks about it in layman terms, if you
0: can. In layman's terms, I can do it in one sentence. They forgot the sun was shining. <laughs>
1: okay. That seems like a pretty significant error. So, uh, How did they forget that the sun was shining and what does that mean to the narrative?
0: Right. The way they work out how much global warming we might cause if we were either to double the CO2 in the atmosphere or we were to emit the... Um, all the greenhouse gases we're emitting at the rate of growth that's been going on in the last 30 years, and we did that all the way to the end of the century. They say, mid-range, that would be about 3 Celsius. But only 1 Celsius of that comes directly from greenhouse gas warming. All the rest comes from between two-thirds, if you like, and and nine-tenths at the high end of, of the warming they predict. doesn't come directly from the greenhouse gases, it comes from what's called feedback response, which is an additional knock-on warming that arises simply because the atmosphere has warmed and therefore various changes go on in the atmosphere, the most notable one being more water vapour will be held by an atmosphere that's warmer than it was before and water vapour is a greenhouse gas. So that amplifies the direct warming and that's how they would say you start off with only one degree of warming from uh, a doubling of CO2 or from all our emissions up to the end of this century but that then becomes three, four or even five Celsius because of this feedback response. Now I wrote in 2007 a long way back now to Sir John Horton who was then the head of the IPCC's climate panel and the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is the official sort of body of bedwetters that says the sky is falling the sky is falling. You can think of them all in chick- chicken little suits running around <laughs> in, 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 in circles and squawking and that's what they do. And so I wrote to him he was in charge of the scientific panel of this You see, and I said look you start off with your one Celsius of direct warming from CO2 by the end of this uh, 21st century and that then you you double that and triple it and quadruple it and quintuple it to get the final warming please explain how that calculation is done. So he said right we go back to 1850 and you can do this on your pocket calculator as I go along if you like. He said the natural greenhouse effect in 1850 was 28 Kelvin. That was before we had anything to do with it. But he said the direct warming from the naturally occurring non-condensing or non-water vapour greenhouse gases is only 8 Kelvin. So 28 Kelvin of total natural greenhouse effect but only eight of which is direct. So the other 20 Kelvin was feedback response. And 28 over 8 gives you three and a half, so that's where you get three to four Kelvin of final warming after you've taken into account the feedback response, by multiplying the direct warming by 28 over 8, which is 3.5. What they'd got wrong in that calculation, and that was why they thought it was 3 to 4 Kelvin, and you'll see this in, in James Hansen's original paper, first time he used, anyone used control theoretic mathematics explicitly from, uh, physical, uh, from uh, engineering physics. They borrowed from engineering physics and screwed it up because they didn't understand what they borrowed. And it was James Hansen who first did this and he said, yeah, you get three to four Celsius of warming per doubling of CO2. The mistake they'd made was that the calculation had forgotten the fact that the sun was shining and that therefore if you had no greenhouse gases at all, no natural greenhouse effect, no feedbacks, nothing, just the sun shining, there would still be a temperature on Earth which they'd forgotten about. <laughs> and it's not a few Kelvin, either it's 260 Kelvin. You have to do it in Kelvin because the numbers don't work if you do these climate calculations. The difference between one Kelvin and the next is the same as the difference between one Celsius and the next to give you an idea what talking about. So what they should have done is not 28 over 8 equals 3.5 therefore 3.5 Kelvin of warming by the end of the century. They should have said 260 plus 28 which is 288 Kelvin, that was the actual temperature in 1850 which was measured for the first time by the, the British who did a, a global measurement system by that time. So you start with that 260 plus 28 and then you divide that by 260 plus 8 and that gives you the correct multiple of the direct warming. So 260 plus 260 plus 28 is 288. Divide that by 268 and you don't get 3.5 you get 1.075. Multiply that by the 1 Celsius or so of direct warming from doubling CO2 or till the end of the century and you get just 1.2, 1.3 Celsius and not the 3 Celsius that they thought was their mid-range estimate. And it's really as simple as that, they just did the division sum without including the the sunshine temperature top and bottom in this little division sum. It was as elementary as that. And they, when they, we first revealed this to them, they were horrified. And they said, oh, yes, but you see, of course, if the feedback regime had changed since 1850 and the new feedbacks had come about or the feedbacks had got stronger, then, of course, y- you would still get 3 Celsius warming. And we said, yes, but all your calculations, when you do them the wrong way as you do them, they assume that there is no change in the feedback regime between 1850 and now. And if we make that same assumption, then 1.3 Kelvin is all we could expect between 2000 and 2100. And we've already had about 0.3 Kelvin of that because we're now 2023. So uh, you're looking at less than a Kelvin, less than a Celsius of warming by 2100, by which time all the fossil fuels will have pretty much run out or become so expensive they won't be used very much anyway. So you don't need to do anything about this now. The warming we'll get is way too small. And we were then just recently able to find out by talking to an eminent control theorist how it was they'd come to make this mistake. And they'd made it because in control theory, which is this branch of engineering physics from which they get the mathematics of this knock-on additional warming called feedback, they had not realized that the climate is not quite the same as an electronic circuit or a factory process that you're controlling with a feedback mechanism. In those traditional control theoretic applications the feedback response signal is deliberately set to be orders of magnitude which means 10 to 100 times greater than any other signal in the system. Whereas in the climate of course the biggest influence is the 260 Kelvin, which is not part of the feedback system, it's part of, it's called the base signal that gets fed into the feedback loop. That is orders of magnitude bigger than the feedback response signal. So it's completely the other way around compared with a normal control theoretic application. So you can't use the differential analysis that was used by the control theorists even though Hansen, when borrowing from them, thought that because that was the way they did it he could do the same. And actually you can't because it's the other way around. And they had not realized that. So then Very recently we calculated backwards from the IPCC's sort of two to five Celsius of warming per doubling of CO2 or until the end of this century and worked out what the feedback strength in what's called watts per square meter or just call it units per degree of the entire input signal, which includes the 260 Kelvin of warming from the Sun, the 20 Kelvin, uh, sorry, the 8 Kelvin of direct warming by the natural greenhouse gases, and the 1 Kelvin of direct warming by a doubling of CO2, and that's 269 if I've got that right, and you then find that if you do that, the feedback strength is between 0.14 and 0.27 watts per square meter per Kelvin of the entire input signal. And that is so tiny that it means that because we don't have very, very certain and very, very well-resolved knowledge of how big the various feedback processes are in the climate because you can't measure them directly, you can't even distinguish them by measurement from the direct warmings that that generated the feedbacks. You can't do that. It means there's no way we can tell where in that interval, if at all, the uh, the true feedback strength is. And if you can't tell that you can't use feedback analysis at all to predict global warming and yet all of the official predictions are based on feedback analysis wow. and it can't be used.
1: So surely now that you've let them know, they're yeah. they're walking back all of their mistakes and letting us know that oh, we can.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if you believe that, you will believe anything. <laughs> Duke of right. you to you say, and there are fairies at the bottom of the garden, and pigs might fly.
1: <laughs> right. uh, Lord Monkton, I, I just got back a couple months ago from the COP 27 in yeah. Egypt, and uh, they they almost stopped talking about the science. Like they don't care anymore. Now it's just you're all headed to climate hell if you don't uh, you know do the things oh, that, that we're was demanding.
0: That, was that uh, uh, Nitwit who is the UN Secretary General? Actually, yeah, uh, Antonio uh,
1: Guterres. Very, and very, even that's Biden, right? A very
0: very undistinguished man. Yes, and uh, you know he's just a, a typical communist bureaucrat, as is Biden of course. And the trouble with that is that they're not working in the interest of the Western countries that Biden, for instance, and Arman Sunak are supposed to represent, they're actually working in the interests the, of the largely communist countries, to which, as a matter of fact, the businesses that we are closing down because we've made energy so expensive to save the planet, they're all going to China and Russia and India and Pakistan, all of whom led by communists. Mm-hmm. And so the West is effectively allowing communists to force them to go along with this policy, even though they made the heroic mistake right at the outset of basing their uh, notion of this supposed climate hell on an elementary error of physics and trying to say, well, the science is settled, when actually it is settled, but in a direction completely the opposite of what they had originally thought. So how do we stop them, Lord Monckton? Very good question. The first step is we have submitted this paper, in fact we submitted it more than two years ago now for review and it was thrown straight back because it was too long they said. So we shortened it and sent it straight back within a day and we have had nothing for two years and two months from them. We write every so often and say hello, how are you getting on? Not. A dicky bird. Now normally a paper of this importance would be read pretty quickly and they would say you've got this wrong and that wrong or we don't like that and you've got to change it and correct it or whatever and they will neither send it out for review nor throw it back to us because if they threw it back to us and then we sent it somewhere else and it was accepted they would look silly. Mm -hmm. If they sent it out for review then the editor of the journal would look silly because he is on record as saying of course there is no possible argument against the Communist Party line on the climate actually there is and I don't know have you got your copy of it handy it's only it's only we might have a very quick flick of a look at it it's only four pages long with a couple of pages of references to show where we got all our numbers from it's really short and in that short but deadly paper is the end of the climate scare, scientifically speaking. So how do we exploit this? Well, the first thing is, we're continuing to circulate this. We've now gone to another journal which is notorious for throwing out rubbish within a week. And it's been with them for two months. So we've got past the, this is rubbish stage. Okay. And we assume that they've now sent it out for review. And we should hear next month if they do it according to the usual timetable for these things. It may take longer because they too have championed the, the cause of saying there is no possible you know, argument against the official position and when I made a pre-submission inquiry some years ago to that particular journal saying we have found an error which appears to cast doubt on the veracity of the entire storyline they just wrote back without asking us what the error was and just said no we don't want to know go away go somewhere else so you can tell that this is no longer scientific It is purely political but there are things you can do And one of the things we can do is to find simpler arguments than this particular one. I mean, when I was explaining the mathematics, it's actually an arithmetical error, it's quite small. But even that is enough to leave a certain percentage of the population behind. Because doing any kind of a sum, they don't like. it's, It's a language they don't really speak. So you have to make it easier. So you have to find other things that chime in with that. And that even a small child, and therefore perhaps even one or two politicians, would be able to understand. And so we've come up with some butes which uh, we're working on. The first is, and I tried this in, in the House of Commons the other day to, to a, a Member of Parliament there who I knew was a true believer in this nonsense, and I said, all right, so if we follow your policy and the British government's policy of going straight from here to net zero in a, in a straight line, from here to 2030, you know, reducing our emissions a little bit each year, if the whole world did that, how much global warming would be prevented? His face was a picture. It instantly froze in a mask of horror because he realised he'd never asked that question. And isn't it kind of, if that's your policy, you kind of want to know. So I said, well, the answer is 0.2 Celsius degrees. You could barely measure that it was any different. And that would cost you, according to McKinsey's, who are cheerleaders for this, and so they almost certainly used underestimated figures, $800 trillion. So every billion dollars you spend on trying to get to net zero emissions is going to buy you a reduction in global temperature of less than one millionth (laughs) of a Celsius degree. Now you laugh immediately because you see the point so clearly. That's the kind of point that any member of the public, even if they were 12, they'd get that and to calculate that figure turns out to be just about the easiest calculation you can do. It's really simple. It's based simply on the fact that despite all the trillions we've spent so far in the last uh, 30 years, since uh, 33 years, third of a century now, since the first IPCC report, the trend line of the anthropogenic influence on the, on the climate Has been rising in a straight line. And so everything we spent had no effect whatsoever. So you then say, well, all right, let's pretend it would have an effect if we spend some more money. In that last 33 years, the temperature has risen at a rate equivalent to 0.13 Celsius per decade. So it's about 0.4 Celsius over the 33 years. And therefore you would be able to, if you went in a straight line from here to net zero, you would debate half of the next 0.4 Celsius, 0.2 Celsius, job done. And the only thing you can do to tweak that is to say, well, we might use a different data set than the satellite data set, in which case you'd have the the urban heat island effect contaminating the terrestrial temperatures, and that bumps it up to 0.3 Celsius. But that's not a lot either. And at a cost of 800 trillion, which is 275 trillion direct capital costs, which is almost certainly a monstrous understatement, and then you'd pr- roughly double that for operating costs. Um, you're going to buy virtually nothing for every billion dollars you spend, spent. And it's when you say that kind of figure to a politician, when I told this politician that figure, he was instantly on the defensive. And he said, oh, but of course there's huge uncertainty in that figure. And I said, no, the uncertainty is only in the temperature data, and we know what the uncertainty is in that, and it makes practically no difference. And he said, oh, the trouble with you, Moncton, is you take all these impossible positions, and then it turns out that you're right. <laughs> so uh, I want
1: to ask you one more question while I've got you here. The last time we, we spent some time together, they had just lit up the Statue of Christ in yes. uh, Rio de Janeiro yes. in green. Yeah. And you said this was them kind of telegraphing that their green religion was taking over from you know the Christianity and what the rest. What I
0: used was superstition.
1: Superstition, OK. Yes. And so at this last climate summit yeah. that I went to, they unveiled the new 10 Commandments. They had yeah. more than 40 religious events with religious leaders, yeah. and they, they kind of made um, subservience to the climate agenda almost a religious imperative. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on this idea of the climate change movement as a religion, as a religious movement?
0: Right. It's not a religion. The distinction between a religion and a superstition is that a religion like, you know, I believe in God, let's say, that you can't prove either way. The reason we can't prove it is that the origin of the universe is separated from us by the smallest, available distance known to man, which is the Planck distance. And our laws of physics didn't come into existence until that distance after the Big Bang. So we have absolutely no idea what caused or who caused the Big Bang. So if I choose to say I believe in God and I think he started it all, then science cannot say that I am right or wrong. I am making a statement which is not actually of interest to science Mm -hmm. and that therefore is a religion because if I choose to believe that and I'm an old-fashioned papist so yes I do believe that, uh, then that's not to do with science and there's a clear distinction between religion on the one hand and science on the other. A superstition is a pattern of belief which you can prove scientifically or in any other way to be incorrect, which has been proven incorrect and to which people nevertheless are foolish enough to adhere. And so this is the climate superstition and what they are doing it by seeking increasing and unquestioning deference to The what I call the Communist Party line on the climate and I call it that advisedly and with a certain amount of background knowledge which I won't bore you with at this stage. Um, They're doing this because any totalitarian regime and that's what this basically is, this whole climate thing, it's, it's driven by totalitarian regimes and it is itself a totalitarian regime. It is trying to say to people you have to defer to what we say, you have to accept the party line. Now, if we now put that in religious terms, In the Judeo-Christian tradition, and we get all our theology in the Catholic Church from the Jews originally, and they've been thinking about it much longer than we have, and your average rabbi is ten times cleverer than your average priest, to be honest, and they really know their stuff, and they kind of believe it properly and everything as well, so they're they're absolutely fascinating. You sit at the feet of of a rabbi and you get the most fascinating education, and they have this concept which we of course borrowed, of the soul. And the soul, in traditional Judeo-Christian theology, comprises the memory, the understanding, and the will, the three faculties or properties of the soul. The understanding, or the, the faculty of reasoning, is the central faculty that separates us most clearly from the beasts and makes us closest in likeness to the divine. If therefore you say you've got to stop using reason and instead you've got to accept the party line doesn't matter what party line it is or where it comes from whether I or you might agree with it or not you are taking away people's humanity and making them into slaves which is what every totalitarian regime does with its own population unless you are of the elite you are a slave of the regime whereas in a free market democracy by the actions of the market which are, is a sum of all the spending and borrowing and uh, creating decisions of everybody in the system and of course the democratic process by which everybody in the system however lowly has the same vote as everybody's system however grand. There you have a proper Work, workmanlike egalitarianism but it doesn't treat everybody as though they are clones and slaves that must just do what they were told it says you are the masters now, you have the vote you can have the spending power to decide what you spend your money on and that's what makes the free market work and therefore you matter much more as an individual in a free market democratic system than you do in any kind of totalitarian system and the danger to the west in the totalitarian imposition of a single line of thought uh, based on what I've just said earlier was in any case a scientific mistake and which also wouldn't work economically even if it wasn't a scientific mistake because you buy so little temperature reduction for so many trillions that you throw at it. Um, the point then is that you are taking away people's very humanity, your taking them back to being merely along the line of the beasts. They are simply the servants of the regime. And so there is not only the economic danger that in making our electricity deliberately unreliable and expensive, thereby driving all of our... Uh, goods and services away, you know, all our steel works and aluminium works in Britain have either closed already and gone to communist China or Russia or communist India or communist Pakistan um, or they're about to go. And it's not just the big boys going, it's also the little postmistresses from a village round the corner from us. It's closed. Why is it closed? Because last year their energy bill was $8,000 and this year $60,000 and the government hadn't thought about the little guy, you know, the big guys can go and say we need subsidies to keep the jobs in our steelworks and so sometimes the government helps out. If you're a wee post mistress so you're only one person, you don't matter to the totalitarian regime that is now in place. So, alright, so you're out of a job, tough luck. Now that's not how I think we should treat our fellow citizens. Mm. And so That particular illustration of this individual postmistress who, you know, is now in tears because she's no longer got her post office, she's no longer got her job, she's no longer got her income, she's got nothing, she's been nullified by the absurd increases in electricity prices which do not come except approximately from the pandemic and the Uh, Special Military Massacre in the Ukraine. They come ultimately from the fact that we've destroyed our cheap, efficient and in modern times very clean coal-fired power stations and replaced them with wind and solar power, which leads on to another point which is worth making, which is that one of the distinguished scientists who advises me is um, a guy called Douglas Pollock, who's an engineer from Chile, who is a specialist in what happens to electricity grids if you put wind and solar power on them. Mm. Thing number one, if you put wind and solar power on a grid it's totally unnecessary to the grid because suppose as every sailor knows that at sundown the sun goes down the clue is in the name and the wind stops blowing so suddenly at sundown when everybody else is turning on their lights and their heating you have no electricity from your renewable all singing all dancing so you have to have what's called thermal generation from coal or gas typically To supply 100% of the grid's demand at all times in case the sun goes down or the wind drops or the too many clouds come in or whatever. So that means that wind and solar, if you took them off the grid and you just kept what is being used as backup, which is all these um, coal and, uh, and gas power stations, you could run the grid just fine. Mm-hmm. And actually the difference between the CO2 emissions in those two cases is virtually nil. But his, his real contribution is that he discovered quite recently that if you add more nameplate capacity of wind and solar to a grid than the total demand on that grid, then you will be generating too much electricity with wind and solar a lot of the time, and therefore you will have wasted the capital expenditure on putting on those extra things. You will not reduce any CO2. You will vastly increase the costs of the grid, and you will vastly reduce its stability. Hmm.
1: And no mention of the environmental impacts of building all these solar panels and windmills.
0: And the reason why the environmental impact is bad, of course, is what's called low energy density. Hmm. For every square mile of these ridiculous solar panels or windmills, I mean, windmills, 14th-century technology to solve a 21st century non-problem expensively I mean it's bonkers when you look at it and this is what they do and so he's discovered that there is this limit above which you can't go now the US is only halfway to that limit so you could if you wanted put more wind and solar on your grids and it would not be entirely wasted it would well, of course it is entirely wasted in the sense that the grid doesn't need it but it wouldn't be as, as wasteful as it then very suddenly and very sharply becomes if you hit that limit. And the equation for that limit is really easy. Excess generation by renewables E, is equal to the nameplate capacity of those renewables. and nameplate capacity means the capacity that they can generate in ideal weather conditions, minus the hourly demand on the grid. And that's it. E equals N minus D and that's an end of it. And what that means is that if you take say, uh, the, the British grid or the United States grid, they're about the same, the, the capacity factor, the, which is how much of the nameplate capacity do you actually get in average weather conditions in that particular territory, is only 25 or 30 percent. What that means is that the penetration factor which is how much wind and solar can you put on the grid before you hit this limit and start wasting it and you know causing huge problems and and gaining no benefit in CO2 emissions at all, is only 25 or 30% of the entire generation by all sources on that grid. These two numbers turn out to be, even though they appear to be completely different numbers, actually identical. Beyond that, you uh, get absolutely no saving in CO2, but you do get a huge increase in the costs of the grid. And here's the thing: US is only halfway there. Britain has overtopped this vital economic limit, this maximum, by 16%, which is one-sixth. That's big. And that means we're getting huge, such huge problems of grid destabilization as a direct result of that one sixth of it that's over capacity of these stupid windmills that in the last year alone, Britain had to pay four and a half billion dollars to stabilise the grid against this excessive capacity that they'd installed. And they don't even know that's why they've had to do it, because until Douglas came along and worked it out, they didn't know this limit existed. In Germany, they are five-sixths over the limit. And they are not only having to pay their own wind farms to turn off, when they're getting too much wind and too much generation, they're now also having to pay neighbouring Denmark, to which their grid is interconnected, to turn off as well. And of course, the poorer German customers paying through the nose for this. And it's no surprise that Germany and Britain, therefore, have two of the most expensive electricity prices per unit of electricity in the world.
1: So uh, it's, it's been fascinating to spend some time with you, Lord Monckton. I appreciate all the updates on all these critical topics. Um, what's the best way for people to follow you and your work? Where can people find this page?
0: Well, uh, you you can find the paper by, you can put it up on your website if you like. Um, That's the easiest thing there. And if you want to get on to me, Monkton at mail.com, M-O-N-C-K-T-O-N at mail.com, if I've got it wrong, you tell me. I'm not here to say I'm God's gift to the climate change debate and everything I say is true. Everything I say is as true as I can make it, but I'm a layman. And so if I've got this wrong, don't be frightened to tell me. And I will do as I've done on several previous occasions, because it's very difficult to get these things exactly right first time. It may need tweaking. But we've now got to the point where we're reasonably confident that there's no mistake so major as to undermine the essence of the argument, which is that they screwed up because they forgot the sun was shining.
1: Excellent. Lord Monkton, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for all you're doing. Thank you.